Welcome to the No Film School podcast. Again, Gigi here, continuing our coverage from the ground at Sundance. And today we are speaking with director Jasmine Jones and investigator slash associate producer Olivia Michaela Ross, this dynamic duo behind the new neon documentary Seeking Mavis Beacon, which premiered at Sundance opening weekend and will be coming to theaters soon. The film follows both Jasmine and Olivia, these e-girl investigators on this search for Mavis Beacon or the model who is based off of the famous influential teaching digital character Mavis Beacon from Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing. You know, the, the story behind it and sort of the hook of this is that the woman who they based the model off of is a Haitian woman who modeled before disappearing from the public eye and was only paid $500 for the work where her image and likeness went on to help the company sell for millions and millions of dollars. So it's a fascinating and very relevant documentary that not only talks about sort of looking at how Silicon Valley has sort of infiltrated these specific spaces. It's a very Bay Area-based story, which I love to see being somebody who comes from the East Bay. But on top of that, it also is very of the moment in terms of how the internet plays into our lives and how it can be something that's positive and how we are choosing the stories we tell and sort of what is right around that. So if you like this episode, I definitely recommend listening to our interview with the team of Subject. And I also am excited to hear our listeners' thoughts on the transformative framework justice that these two people use to basically redefine how to tell a story in this way. And now my interview with Jasmine Jones and Olivia Michaela Ross. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Would you mind introducing yourself and the role you played in the film? Yes, thank you so much for having us. My name is Jasmine Jones. I'm the director of the film and also an investigator in the film. Um, And I'm Olivia Michaela Ross. I'm co-investigator and associate producer. So you both are very much part of the film. We are like on this journey with you. Before we get into the making of the film itself, how did you two find each other? Yeah, so it was like, I don't know, like June 3rd. I just graduated high school. I was on a plane in Minneapolis and met Jazz and their art collective, like social organizing collective Bufu, who were presenting at IO Festival, which is like an art and technology conference that happens, it's still happening in Minneapolis every year. And it was at Walker Art Center. And I like played musical chairs with the other student volunteers so that I could be in Bufu's presentation because I was just very inspired by just like the kind of like specific ethics around community organizing as they related to also bringing in art and technology as tools for those things. And was also just like very amazed after exiting like a very competitive high school environment Mm -hmm. to see people who were thinking really critically about like radical education and like what's possible in that regard. And so um, I, yeah, there was a summer 2019, there was the With You, For You school, a decentralized school where like different people from the community were like teaching classes on like love and 
like environment and the body and like just different different subject areas. I think there was like future studies and earth studies mm-hmm. and all of these amazing things. And I proposed and then taught a class on my 18th birthday about cyber feminism. And it was through that class that, yeah, I think it was the first time Jazz and I encountered each other on a more like theoretical level. Mm-hmm. See, it's always so weird when Olivia describes our meeting of her being like a student volunteer because it's, I don't know, that just feels like it's a very humble beginning. But for me, I was familiar with Olivia in the way that like there's cool people you follow online and you're like, I want to be friends with them. They're so smart. And then, yeah, I was editing the class that Olivia had taught and trying to make like all of the amazing things she said into two minutes. And in that class on Olivia's 18th birthday, she was talking about this concept of cyber doulas or someone who like stewards a nonviolent relationship with technology. And I was like, wait, this is the language I've been searching for to describe Mavis Beacon. And Olivia also just like in a really playful way talked about like our relationship to surveillance and data trauma and the fact that these things that happen in the digital realm have real life impacts. So I DM'd Olivia and was like, (laughs) hey, can we maybe collaborate, work together? I don't know, like you're probably busy. And it just so happened that this was during the pandemic and Olivia was very disenchanted with doing school on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So Um, yeah, I I was the incoming college class. I took a gap year after graduating. And so I was the freshman class of 2020 and had my first ever college semester on Zoom. And after that, I was like, there is no way you could get me to pay another cent (laughs) on this experience. So I was very, suddenly had so much free time. And there's a very shiny, wonderful documentary to be made. I love that. It sounds like there was this like mutual creative crush that was happening and you both were admiring each other's work and then already were interested in working together. It was just a matter of somebody saying, should we do this or let's talk? Totally. And given that this was happening during the pandemic and I, you know, I'm bi-coastal, but when shit hit the fan, I went to be with my family in California. Yeah. So really for, I don't know if it was like the first six months, Olivia and I, this collaboration really formed on the screen and online. And we were like well into the work until we encountered each other in person. So I do think Though our relationship predates the film, you're really watching our bond grow and our connection grow throughout the investigation. Can we talk about those early exploratory conversations? The idea of courting someone as a creative partner is, it, it, you know, you are getting into a long-term relationship with somebody that has highs and lows and is really scary. And especially in documentary, you don't know what is going to unfold. You don't know what the story is. How did you sort of level set and get on the same page to know what you're working towards? I think this is where the benefit of not having a film career prior to this or really having made a film work to our advantage. I think more than using the language of the film industry, we were using the language of collective organizing Mm -hmm. and those principles of care work and checking in on the person you're doing work with. Um, Moving at the speed of trust. Exactly. To be honest, I don't know... We didn't know how long this film would take. And I'm very curious of how the conversation would have gone if I said, hey, Olivia, do you want to be in part of a documentary for the next two years plus (laughs) indefinitely in perpetuity? So I think that it was just us both having this like shared curiosity and being like, we want to get to the bottom of this question. And we weren't so caught up on thinking about the results. We were looking for supporters who could help us resource the investigation, but it really was driven by our curiosity more than an ultimate goal. Yeah. The the setting of, you know, 
of the film is is very interesting and very specific. Set in the Bay Area, if you're trying to put a label on a physical location of where it's taking place. But of course, you go to many different sort of unexpected places when investigating. But also the this intangible, the digital space, which you to do such a it's it's such an interesting way to portray that. So I'd love to hear about like how you built the world or infrastructure of the film, if that makes sense. Uh, totally. Yeah. So I was working with an editing team. It was myself, John Fine, and Yulen Cohen. And very quickly, I knew I'm coming from like a video art background. I'm a Tumblr girly. So like the idea of playing with screens and stuff is something that's just very comfortable for me. But trying to figure out how to make that work in the context of a feature film was the task for us. So I I love rules. I love parameters. So much of the film is all over the place. It's very dense. So I felt like we needed a rule for those desktops. And so the rule we created was that you need, like, in the investigative footage, this fly-on-the-wall material, there needs to be, like, you need to see the technological device that kind of takes us into this portal of the desktop space. It was really interesting. This has always been just like a language, a visual language that I use. But in development, I became familiar with the term desktop documentary. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's what I've been doing here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, also looking at the genre of true crime, I think there's a huge trend. of We'll just fill the B-roll in and post. And we're going to do some after effects with the news article where things are highlighted and the depth of field is. And I really didn't want to do that. So yeah, the desktop became a really helpful tool for us to get into some of the research that we were doing, which is very much influenced by Olivia and I's specific algorithms that we have trained to be extremely Black and feminist. And yeah, and then making it feel like this idea of desktop realism. So the windows are appearing in a way, the TikToks are coming on the screen. All of that is happening in a way that feels like you might be watching a screen recording from the actual actual investigation. I love that. It was it was like the, uh, something that I had never seen or experienced before. And another thing that I have rarely seen or experienced before is documentary film that so powerfully turns the mirror on itself. In we are in this time where the the format is changing. You bring up true crime, uh, which you know specifically crosses lines in terms of ethics in (laughs) many, many ways. And we've had the team of subject on the podcast before. We recently had Gabriella Cowperth-Waith, who has also showed, you know, looked at sort of like the ethics behind the stories we're telling. And in the film, one of the turning points in the story is you two having a conversation of, should we be seeking out this woman, Renee? Does she want to be part of this and how does consent come into the story that we're telling and we're unfolding and it was so awesome that you opened opened up in that way so I'd love to hear about like how did that sort of come to be part of the film did you expect it to be part of the narrative and 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 what were you doing along the way to sort of like engage in that conversation I think I think from the start it was kind of always like a initial question mostly because we were very aware that the, the desire to interview Renee was coming from a place of admiration and love and not really from a place of like she committed no crimes. This isn't like there is no actual, there is no charge. The stakes are not life and death. They're just life. It's just we. <laughs> You're just giving life. We just really like you. <laughs> so there's an, an sense of we, there 
it's arguable in true crime whether or not people have the right to talk to people. But in this case, we really don't have the right necessarily to be in her business. We're just like nosy. We just think you're cool. And so (laughs) coming from that perspective of already deep respect, there's also an immediate acknowledgement of this is an autonomous person who may very well want nothing to do with us. And so Jasmine talks a lot about like studying the same way that we're kind of like engaging with like the field of detective work and like trying to like trouble that and like figure out like what things do we like and want to use and what things are actually a bit too carceral and too weird for us to be dealing with. We're also really inspired by like Zora Neale Hurston's like anthropological legacy and like the kind the idea of using creating offerings mm-hmm. and like being in a relationship where we understand like the person who chooses to engage with us as we are holding like a camera, like a, a tool of capture mm-hmm. in our hands is giving us a gift and should be honored in that way. Mm-hmm. One of the things you talk about is you mentioned earlier is using the language of community organizing in filmmaking. What are things you hope to see more in like in the documentary space and people sort of leaning into that? I think, you know, in community organizing, you're also, you're thinking about the long-term impacts of the things that you're doing. In filmmaking, I think it's like, you're just thinking about like releasing this movie, but Olivia and I, in addition to like our relationship to Renee and her family and that legacy, and also our relationship to the materials, right? So it's like, we are not just archivists on camera. Like we actually now have a rich folder of information that we've uncovered, a lot of details that we weren't able to include in the film. And we really do want that to be accessible to anybody who's interested in it. So that's one thing. Specifically, like this transformative justice frameworks mm. that that you approached and that you that was from the very beginning, just like in the DNA of the work that you were doing. How do you think that the the documentary film space, especially again in this time where true crime, and I recently heard the new terminology of true con. Wow, yeah, that makes sense that so they would do that. It, and, and it's just, there, there feels, it feels like we're moving in a direction that can be incredibly toxic and damaging and hurtful of people and there isn't consent there. So what are some like transformative justice frameworks that you think emerging filmmakers can take into that space? And Olivia, you touched upon it about just acknowledging like the fact that holding a camera is like a tool of capture. And so, yeah, I'm curious, like, how how you think people people can be better employing these tools. Yeah, I think it's worth, it makes me want to like kind of track my own trajectory as a creator. You know, I'm a millennial. One of the art forms that I was interested in as I was also like be- becoming a filmmaker was street photography. <laughs> and really glad I started there because I think that really allowed me to unpack the ethics. There's this idea amongst street photographers. First of all, I think it's the most extractive art form. I think it's so rude. It's premised on the idea that if you're in a public space, then you're free for the taking, which never acknowledges that not everybody has access to private space. So, and there was a dialogue that being in community with other street photographers where it's, well, if you take the time to ask consent, you can't get the picture as good. And I'm like, that's on you as the person taking the image. If you can't make this person comfortable, if you see something in the wild and you want to capture it and you can't find a way to make this person comfortable with that and to recreate it, then you have failed. And just taking it without their permission is not... um, Sounds like a skill issue. Exactly. It's like, that's a problem. So I think my own relationship to consent had been shifting through that work. And I started to like people for pictures and 
the images felt better. And yeah. also I then was like, oh, but the framing is a little like contrived. And I don't know, like you can feel that. So I've been trying to figure out how to ask for consent, but still have things feel like they're alive. And then it was really through this like collective organizing and learning from my peers and co-founders of Bufu, Sonia Choi, Zedem Tom, Sagay Tefese. They, I think, grew me because they were coming from this, yeah, collective organizing background where care and love are at the center of what you do. We also were working on a documentary project looking at Black and Asian cultural and political relationships. And as the documentarian of the group, there were many times where I would edit this piece and I'd be like, oh, isn't it powerful? They'd be like, yeah, it's entertaining, but it doesn't feel good on a soul level. I specifically think about a thing we were editing about the LA riots. And I had sourced all of these archival materials to tell this emotional story about LA riots and the racial dynamics. And they were like, yeah, no, (laughs) let's rethink this. And I'm so glad we did because years later, I was listening to a podcast about the LA riots and I heard them use the exact same archival clips I had pulled in the exact same order. And I realized that even when you think you're going to this like raw material, you know, it's like news archive. It's like that was captured through such a specific lens that is so racialized that you can try to work with these materials and extract it, but it's embedded into the quality of which it was recorded. So yeah, I think that taught me a huge lesson of also things need to feel good at the point of recording. And then they also like how you edit it will impact if it feels good. And so, yeah, thinking about for myself, for Olivia, for everyone we interview, I was very aware that these images would be permanent and that people would be in dialogue with them. And I wanted to, to me, like a picture of somebody or a video of somebody is not a good picture if they don't like it. So it's, I can't tell you, look at how good you look. I took a great picture. And then you're like, but I don't, that's not my angle. Yeah. So for me, the, my skill, like the skill that I have to keep in mind as I'm directing this process and shooting it is, is the subject feeling comfortable with how they're being portrayed because they're doing a huge gift. They're giving me a huge gift in lending their likeness and it is not to be taken lightly. That is, I think, something for all emerging filmmakers to come back to at the end of the day. Does this feel good in the moment? And we we know that that is not how it's been. I also love that you specifically called out the telling the emotional story in that clip about that or in the piece about the L.A. riots and how that actually didn't feel true. And that, you know, even if that is an instinct and of course, of course we want to be telling stories and we want to entertain, but if it's at what cost Mm -hmm. and then pushing beyond that can get to even more and different stories that feel better. Mm -hmm. In the film, we see you going to people and engaging with them in this very human way where it's like coming from a vulnerable, a place of vulnerability, a place of curiosity. And I think it is also sort of this masterclass in how to be creating in a way that is with the people that are going to be on the screen forever. It's it's so cool. It's so powerful. Thank you. And I will say, we spent a lot of time Googling, like we just trained ourselves on how to do a lot of these things. So No Film School was a really useful resource when I was like, how do I set design? Like, how do I make this headquarters? And yeah, uh, how do you make a movie? So thank you for the resource because we... Google, I don't want to shout out Google, but search engines are really what trained us in making this movie. I would say more than any like higher education, any accelerator, any fellowship, it was truly just, yeah, using search engines to figure out what other people are saying. The tools are at are there. The information is there. It's just about finding it. I mean, it makes sense. We've got detectives here <laughs> figuring it out. I, I mean, the, to, to 
talk about the space in the in the West West Oakland warehouse that you created that then also becomes part of the story, which I don't want to reveal on the podcast. So actually, this I didn't even think I was going to talk about, but you've created this safe space, this beautiful space that like in many ways became part of the story itself. Let's talk about nesting and like yes. how can people be creating their space like it that? Was, it was honestly like probably one of the most important things that we did at the beginning because like it was COVID. So it wasn't like we could co-work in the co-working. Like there was no, like the coffee shop like that. It would have gotten weird. Yeah. And so, and then there was also a sense of like, with how like, how deep the rabbit hole went if we tried to map things out in like Jazz's house house like just it would have just gotten like we would have lost our minds much faster um and so I think from the very early on like I think there was a large amount of like intention setting that went into the process of like we're gonna have an HQ like all the investigator bros do and it's gonna have an altar and it's gonna have couches and it's going to we're going to get these TVs off Facebook Marketplace mm-hmm. and the street and we're going to put them on a stack and kind of like creating, I think, like a place to spiral that felt like it could contain all, like all of the things we didn't know it would contain. And also a place that was set up in a way that like we could be filming from any angle mm-hmm. and not have to spend too much time like setting up the shot and then getting, and then leaving our bodies because we're in like spectator mode was also really important as well. And I know Jess. Yeah, no, I think it circles back to your question of what collective organizing principles came into play. And for us, if you have a project, you team up with a local nonprofit or grassroots organization in order to amplify that cause because we never have the resources we need. So like just this idea of finessing scamming is like very top of mind and being like also aware of, we add a lot of value to these nonprofits. Like We are like, you can work with us and you've got blackness covered, queerness covered, youth culture. And so also understanding that though we may not have these crazy like accolades that our bodies being in these spaces inherently makes them more thorough and more radical. And so that is what we pitched on is reaching out to these nonprofits where we saw that they didn't include people like us and saying, hey, let us help you enact your mission statement. Uh, And that's, a, I think, coming at people with that understanding where it's like giving them both the benefit of the doubt, but just saying the quiet part out loud, which is you need us uh, and we will make you better for it. Um, So yeah, I think I would encourage any makers to just also think about outside of the institutional support, these larger institutions. And yes, you can get a camera package from Panavision and that's great and you should apply for it. But also who do you know who you can borrow their camera. And yeah, like you don't need a $700 Astera light. You can also just figure it out with a bulb from the dollar store. And so, yeah, I think- it, You can buy and return. You can buy and really? return. That's a big thing. Another thing I'd like to shout out, just slightly pivoting for like yeah. filmmakers that are just starting out is something, I, if I could do it again, I don't think, I felt like the moment we had resources, we just had to act. So it's like the moment Neon approved this project, we're on the go. And I don't think I knew to ask to test things. You know, it's, we just have to do this. So the idea of testing cameras, testing lenses, doing color tests, yeah. all of those things were things I didn't know to ask for that would have saved us a lot of time and money. Yeah. So I would say, I think, when you're at the start of your career and you just feel like ingratiated to these people, it's hard to ask for what you need. And people assume that you're just 
asking for what you need. So I do think like advocating and letting people know there are so many times in the process I said, hey guys, I'm a first time filmmaker. I don't know how this works. Explain this to me. Raquel Savage, I believe, but Raquel who did our graphics, who's with Salt Press. I really appreciate it. We were talking in post-production and she just said, okay guys, explain this to me like I'm a five-year-old. And I think that's just, it's a great prompt. Yeah. Um, so that like you not knowing something, it's not on you. It's not like you have this like, inferiority complex, but just naming like, this is where I'm at. And this is the information I need help figuring out. And hey, we're all a community here. We all have the same interests. Help me figure this out. Right. That's such an interesting gap to identify. And it feels like often so daunting as an emerging filmmaker, especially if you're entering a space where it's like, oh, these people have made like a ton of films. And Mm -hmm. I don't like, should I, what I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And to be able to articulate that what what were some of the like when were when did you realize for example I sh- I could have asked for to test lenses was that just something in it's conversation after realizing the lenses we had were incredibly hard to focus with yeah. which you know plays into the dreamy quality of this film yeah yeah but I think yeah it's I think we pitched this film and when you're in the pitching stage you're like I'm the best person for the job I'm so smart I'm so brilliant I'm so qualified right. and and you have to you that's have part to. of the and you are like, in a, if totally, that- yeah. And not to discredit that, but it's, I think it's also then once you get past the pitch stage and people have greenlit it, it's really hard to admit, like, I actually don't know how this works. And I was kind of like, I was like emphasizing like my prowess a little bit more. Like now let's talk for real about where we're at. Yeah. So yeah, I think I, w- I was really lucky in terms of the team that I was surrounded with. Bell Moon is literally, that's my family. There are members of my family. And so- I felt very comfortable being like, guys, I don't know what's going on here. And then with Neon too, there was a lot of understanding when it came to giving us time to figure it out. And also they emphasized, we think this is interesting, regardless of the outcome of this investigation, we think what you're doing is really interesting. And, you know, that manifested when a few years ago, they're like, so are we ready to submit the film to Sundance? And I was like, can I have more time? And having to negotiate for those things and realizing that from the outside, it's like, oh, they invested this money and they want the return of the investment and we have to release it. And like when you actually talk to them as a person and you're like, this could be better if we could just sort it out more. And then being like, yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> so I think for me, just being able, I think asking for what you really need and also the reality- what you want. What you want. And the reality is like our intuitions were not that far off. So there would be a lot of things that I would doubt myself in the process or just really quietly and be like, maybe I might need this later. And then a month goes by and you've spent money and it's okay. I actually did need that. Um, And so for example, like just in post-production, we needed a space to edit. We no longer had the headquarters. And so asking them like, Hey, maybe I could get a space to edit. And then the edit took very long and being like, Oh shit should have asked for my own editing system so that I could do this from home. And then having to be like, hey guys, I know we just spent a lot of money running out this space, but could I also get a system? And then being like, okay. And so I think it's like on the outside, I was like really intimidated because it's like thinking about it from that financial perspective of they've invested so much in me. I have to prove that I'm good for it. But also everybody just wants the film to succeed. So you have to ask for what you need and you can't like make yourself smaller in those moments because you just end up costing more money, you know? So the longer it takes for you to ask for the thing that you suspect you might need, the more it costs you. And then you're just going to ask for it in the end anyway, probably, or regret that you didn't ask for it. 
Yeah. Thank you for being so transparent about that in particular. It's I I I am in a similar situation in post and I'm like, I need more time and I need to ask for it. And it's really scary for the exact the reasons that you're outlining, but it's okay. And it's okay for it to be scary at two to feel scared to ask. That's how I feel anyway. Okay. So the film has is here at Sundance. And I'd love to hear how the now that it's been in front of an audience, what the reaction is and how how you how what it is what it has been like to have it out in the world. I really was I think the thing most that most surprised me about what I enjoyed about the premiere is like sitting in a crowd of people like who were like laughing at the things that like I thought were pretty mm-hmm. funny <laughs> and like like sighing the things that like were a little disappointing. And it I felt very like stereotypically, wow cinema really unites the human race we're all we all bleed we all feel that's so great wow the way wow I just feel so connected to every human being in this room laughter just unites the yes. human race yes. <laughs> and like a really mushy way I was like I feel so close to everybody in this room right now and I think a lot of folks have been like oh are you nervous are you upset like how do you feel about being at something I predominantly feel like a lot of love mm-hmm. I mostly feel wow like we were like super so far like we've been like watching the film in rooms that kind of only have this like a very immediate circle of people mm-hmm. and like now that that cycle of circle of people has like, double triple ten times the size it was and it is still liable to get much larger the fact that most people who encounter it are like receive it so warmly has been like really really wonderful because it's just wow Mavis B can try. It's just getting bigger and bigger. And that's really nice. Yeah, I want to shout out. There were two Black femmes sitting in front of us at the premiere. They did not know that Olivia and I were sitting behind them. And what a treat. They vocalized every every thought. And so just like, what a magical experience. Like hearing them in real time be like, oh, look at Olivia. She's so nice. Oh, I like the music. Ooh, they're going (gasps) next to this place. And okay, so is is that Renee's son calling? What's going on here? And it was amazing and that's something that I didn't know to look forward to and then yeah my whole family was at the premiere I come from a family of brilliant people but I am the first filmmaker and being an artist is kind of a different thing and so getting them to see what it means to be a filmmaker on this scale and walk the step and repeat and yeah having a room full of people laugh at my dad's dad jokes is like the best thing in the world so for me I think it's yeah I'm perpetually waiting for the other shoe to drop where I'm like, wow, this is like so surreal. I'm really excited. On Tuesday, we have a screening, a high school screening. And that as that's where the truth will come out because, you know, it's a group of people that were all born after Mavis Beacon was super relevant. After me, I'm not even in high school. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, this is the yes, truth test. Now we'll like, see what yeah. lands. So, I'll, you know, circle back with okay, me after okay. Tuesday <laughs> and see how I feel. Well, congratulations. And I hope that you are absorbing all this love for the film in, because it, watching it, I felt the love you put into it. And it's amazing to see it come to life and be out in the world. Yes, thank you. And good luck on your film and on post. And I would just like to say, give them hell, you know, ask Let for them what tell you, you know. Let them, Let tell, them you. tell you know a few times. Also, it's you're already in post-production. So what are they going to do? You know, get what you need. Um, They're like, be like, hey, if this takes longer, it's actually yeah. your fault. Yeah, and cite us. Be like, I talked to the team from Seeking Mavis Beacon and they, they were saying. So yeah, yeah, that's for anybody in the audience. Give them <laughs> hell. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
Thank you so much, Jasmine and Olivia, for joining us during your busy Sundance premiere. I'm so thrilled to hear that No Film School has been a resource for you too, and that you and the work you're doing is setting a standard for how others can be telling stories in meaningful and ethical ways and still have an amazing time doing it. I love that you're fighting for the story and your own space and and doing it in a way that is, you know, it's such a joy to be around you both. So I'm really excited for this film. I can't wait for it to be out in the world. We'll definitely check in with you when it is out in the world. And congratulations. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the No Film School podcast across all podcast platforms. You can also get more No Film School and Sundance coverage at nofilmschool.com. Finally, you can... Follow us on social media at No Film School. And you can also follow Jasmine and Olivia and their work on social media. They have a great social media presence that's tied to this film. Thanks for listening. <laughs>